Also, you can give by texting GIVE to the TBA number. And just remember next steps where you can always go there for prayer or anything you might need. We got a few announcements today. Here's what's coming up. If you'd like to be baptized, we ask that you take a baptism class. The next one is August 28th, right after service. So if you'd like to uh, be a part of it, go ahead and text BAPTISM to the TBA Connect number. Last thing, one important thing that we're struggling with right now is in our tech team. So if you have any skills within tech, especially streaming, we could really use your help on the tech team. So if you'd like to be a part of that, just text info at tbachurch.com and we'll get you all set up on the tech team. We could really use your help. So this is like one of those things where we ask you what to do, but then like a lot of people don't do it. So like if you really could do it, that would be amazing. Thanks. All right, that's all for announcements. Now here's Jamie Bennett with the message. Well, that's the best announcements video I've ever seen. So, and, and thanks, Richard. You pretty much preached the sermon, so we can almost wrap up. So, that's awesome. So, perspective, right? Yeah, Richard, yeah. Perspective, it's, it's something that Richard just talked about. And it's something that we always need to have. And today, as we go through the last part of Ephesians 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, we're going to have to work on our perspective a little bit, I think. So let me set some perspective for you right now. Christ is risen. Truly, I tell you that Christ is risen. Amen? Amen. So if you're here for the first time this morning, what a joy it is to welcome you to this place. I trust that you've come to worship the Lord and to hear from him today. Good morning to all of you and to those of you watching online. My name is Jamie Bennett, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at TBA. One of the tasks I have the privilege to do is to work with our great discipleship leaders that we have here so that they might lead us as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. But truly, the responsibility for discipleship, it falls on all of us. Disciples are what the Lord commanded us to make. That's our mission. So if you've been following along this summer, we've been in the book of Ephesians and we've been tracking this vision of this letter, which is to sit, walk, and stand with Christ. Paul is laying out for us in Ephesians what it looks like to be a disciple. That's what he's communicating to us. So this is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. First, we are positioned with him. We are given this great gift of salvation which places us in him and with him as adopted sons and daughters of Christ. <clears throat> then we're to walk with him. And what that means is that for all this great theological training that he gave us in the first half of the letter, for all of that, it still has to be lived out. We are required to be disciples who walk with Jesus. And walking implies action, but it's not just an individual's action. You see, when we walk with Jesus, it's in the context of community. It's the community that he established, that he died for. That's called the church. So last week, as you worked through the first half of Ephesians chapter five, or you should have been working through that, the first verse of that chapter instructs us to be an imitator of God. And then what Paul unfolds are instructions to us in his letter. And that 
is teaching us spiritual disciplines. That's what he's teaching us in this chapter. And Paul uses this metaphor of walking with Christ to describe those spiritual disciplines. He says that we must walk with Christ in his love. And then we must walk with Christ in his light. And then we have to walk with Christ in his wisdom. So my assignment today is to work through a very specific discipline that Paul teaches in chapter five and goes into in chapter six. And that's a discipline of submission. And if we read these passages in their given context, we're gonna see that Paul is giving us three examples of what submission to each other looks like in the church and within our homes. So first, Paul is gonna discuss submission in marriage. Then we're gonna also see examples of submission in the relationship between children and their parents. And finally, between servants and masters. So this is a completely non-controversial passage in the Bible, right? So should be pretty easy to get through. So, so if you have your Bible or your Bible app, let's turn to chapter five in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse 22. <clears throat> the apostle says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So with a bit of fear and trepidation, I'm going to stop right here and let this sit for a moment, okay? It's important for us to remember that this is the word of God. And in this church, we affirm inerrancy and the inspiration of the scriptures. This means that we believe that the words of the Bible are true and without any mixture of error in their original form. And we also believe that scripture has been faithfully handed down through the centuries to us and that we have tested and faithful translations that we can rely on. So with that said, we can be confident that this is God's message for us, but there are some very specific things you need to know about this passage that maybe causes some of the controversy we've seen in the world today with it. So first, I wanna point out that in these verses, the wives are given three 
commands, and husbands are given three commands. But what's interesting about that is that it takes two statements to explain the three commands to the wife, and it takes about four or five statements to explain the husband's commands to him. (laughs) So it does make you kind of wonder, are husbands truly that dense? Some of you ladies are nodding your head out there. How could I know I'm a man, a husband? But actually, I do suspect that the reason for this way that it's worded is that in that culture and in Paul's time, the commands given to husbands were actually much more controversial than telling wives they have to submit to their husbands. So you need to know some background to get that. The time period of Paul's writing is a period of Greco-Roman culture where women were largely marginalized. There's a lot of historical evidence that suggests to us that women were treated as commodities. And we also know that many authorities considered women as inferior. Even the great philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, had that view and taught it. Further, we know that both Greek and Roman men would, would often and did often choose to reject their newly born children if they were females. You see, those infants would be cast out and left abandoned outside the city walls. Those babies would die of exposure, lack of nourishment or care, or even attack from wild animals. But in the second civil period, the period of the gospel message, the Jewish culture clashed with the Greco-Roman culture And without exception, Jewish religious leaders condemned the practice of abandoning children. But that doesn't mean that women were treated as equals among the Israelites either. So faithful Jews who followed the Torah understood that God cared for all human beings, regardless of gender or any other differences, that men and women are created equal in the eyes of God because they both bear the image of God. Even with that understanding, the role of women in Jewish society was much different than it is today. So an example of that, females were almost always arranged for marriage to a much older male. The choice of marriage was not hers, but it was her father's. So things were different. We also know that even Jesus commented pretty negatively concerning the way that some Jewish men practice divorce. In Mark chapter 10, you see that, and you see that he's telling them that it's in an act of abandonment. So that tells us that the Jews did not fully obey the commandment to care for their wives. And the case in point is right here in this passage is the apostle Paul literally is instructing men that they have to sacrificially love their wives because they are made in the image of God. He's having to explain that to them. So I think we could spend the rest of the day examining the difference between the treatment of women and men, the way it was then, the way it is now. But I want to get to the point. And that is that when the inspired author wrote this letter, the statement, wives submit to your husbands, wasn't a controversial statement, as it sometimes is mistakenly now. But I want to take a look at this passage one more time a little bit deeper because there's a part that would have been thought-provoking and maybe perhaps even a little bit controversial to the women of those days. It says, wives, submit to your husbands 
as to the Lord. That's verse 22. In a culture where women were marginalized and married to men, they didn't even know. The apostle says to submit to this man as you submit to the Lord. See, this part has to do with intention of the heart. He didn't say submit because that's what you're supposed to do. He didn't say submit because that is your lot in life or because the husband has power over you. He is stating that the quality of this submission is to be found in the Christian virtue of love for others. The Lord Jesus himself said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Lord is saying that obedience is how you express love to him as Lord and Savior. And in a similar way, when a wife submits to her husband's leadership, it's an act of love. That's the quality that Paul is homing in on this passage. Submission is an act of love. I told you that there's a few things in this passage that stands out. But one of the most interesting things is the way the Greek language works in this, in this passage that we're looking at here. So interestingly, the word submit in our earliest manuscripts isn't present in verse 22. So you might say to me, wait a minute, Jamie, you just spent the last 10 minutes talking about how wives are to submit to their husbands, and now you say that that word isn't actually in the passage. But that is because the word is implied. If we were to translate this in the Greek word for word, it would look something like this. Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. So how do we know that the word submit is implied in this passage? Well, if you've been attending the summer course on Bible interpretation, you would immediately recognize that there is an interpretation principle at work in this passage that we need to know. It's called the literary principle. And you might also remember, if you're in that class, one of our commandments of Bible interpretation, and that is, thou shall never read a Bible verse. This commandment of interpretation reminds us first that there is no such thing as chapter numbers and verse markers in scripture. Those are medieval additions to the text. The original manuscripts and even the most original translations do not have those markers. Now those are great reference markers for us. They help us in study and as we examine the scriptures, but they're not part of scripture. And the second thing that this principle teaches us is that there's no, there is such a thing as literary context. Important to the meaning of any passage of scripture is the surrounding passages. You cannot rightly interpret scripture without examining the literary context. So with that principle in mind, we need to back up to the verses that come before verse 22. In Ephesians 5.21, Paul is finalizing this discussion that he has on spiritual disciplines and how they culminate in Christian love. And he says this, the last commandment in that passage, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. As we walk with Christ, we are to submit to another, each other. So right before Paul's commands to wives in verse 22, Paul has already commanded all people everywhere, both men and women, brothers and sisters, wives and husbands, to submit to one another. The point of this passage 
is mutual submission. So as we continue on in this passage, you see that Paul discusses a divine order that he structured for Christian marriage. And Paul often uses a picture of marriage as an analogy for how one has to view the church, should view the church that Christ died for. Here he's using it in reverse to describe that the church and its head, who is Christ, is also a picture of how marriage should look. Paul states that the husbands have have God-given authority in relation to his wife, but that authority is derived authority. It's derived from the authority that comes from Christ. So you might ask, what manner of authority is this? And I think the text tells us In verse 23, it says, he is the savior of the body. Now, Greek scholars, they look at this passage and they're unsure of whether that pronoun he, atos in Greek, they're unsure if it's referring to Christ or to the husband. And the second question they have is, whose body is this passage talking about? Now, because Paul is usually using an analogy here, most understand that it naturally refers to Christ and that the body is the church body but they they also understand that the husband is the savior of the body because a husband and a wife are one flesh. And thus through the husband's leadership, he can lead both himself and his wife towards salvation in Christ. That's why the apostle refers back to Genesis two when he discusses how the husband should love his wife. The husband is not like Christ in that he can provide salvation for her, but he is like Christ and his work towards his wife through his love and through his devotion. Christ can use a husband as the means to bring the wife towards salvation in him. That's the type of authority that the husbands are given to lead their wives and their families towards salvation in Christ and then to teach, to demonstrate, and to lead them towards obedience to Christ. Submission. Husbands, future husbands, do you understand the enormous responsibility that this task of love is that's placed on you? Do you think that you won't be held responsible? Maybe you've heard the saying, with great power comes great responsibility. I call this the Peter Parker principle. So if, you, if you've ever watched the Spider-Man movies, or maybe you've read the comics, then you know that Peter's Uncle Ben says that to him, right? But the tragedy of that saying in the, in the movie, if you watch that is, that, is that Peter fails to act responsibly, to use the authority that has been given to him, and his uncle's life is taken by the criminal that he should have stopped. Peter had the authority to act, but he failed, and it cost the life of a loved one. So he made that his life statement. With great power comes great responsibility. But I think Jesus also tells us this. In Luke 12, 48, he says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even much more will be expected. That's part of a parable, but it applies in this passage. 
and to what manner of love that husbands have been given. The authority required of a husband in a Christian marriage comes with heavy expectations and responsibility. And we dare not take that lightly. Lives are at stake. So with that said, I think it's also important that we mention a couple things. Of all the spiritual disciplines that Paul commends in Ephesians 5, this particular discipline can and has been severely misinterpreted and even abused. First of all, for any man that would suggest that this verse allows him to exercise cruel power over his wife or to abuse his wife, he has not only violated the literary principle of biblical interpretation, which tells him that he is to submit to his wife as well and to love her, but he's at odds with the Lord's commandment to a mutual love, sacrificial love. A man like that is teaching and practicing a distorted view of the Lord's commandments. And that makes him a false professor and a false teacher of the faith. And second, there's a tendency to make a sharp contrast between the word submit as applied to the wife and the word love as applied to the husband. But such a contrast doesn't exist in scripture because the word submit is itself a way in which one person loves another. And the word love requires giving up your own needs, including your very life for the needs of another. Love and submit are synonymous in this way. Husbands who are joined to their wife as one flesh cares for his own body when he places the needs of his wife above his own self. That's what love is. A third abuse of this passage is to become self-defacing. Submission does not mean self-hatred or self-contempt. And here's the problem with that line of thinking. It's still about the self. See, when people turn a spirit of submission into a spirit of self-contempt, it quickly becomes a spirit of self-pity. And a spirit of self-pity soon transforms into a spirit of selfishness. And pretty soon, what should have been an exercise in sacrificial service to another becomes an exercise in self-creative martyrdom. That type of submission is nothing more than a badge of prideful self-indulgence. And it's unworthy for a child of the Most High King. A fourth type of abuse of this, type, of this passage is a type of interpretation method, which I like to call, that was then, this is now. And this is a type of interpretation that says, well, Paul is talking about the way things were back then, but it doesn't really apply to today. The problem with that kind of view is that it's a type of relativism. And ultimately, any type of relativism self-defeats. We do not measure statements based on when they were said, but on whether they are true or not. The Greek verbs in this passage are in the present tense and the indicative mood. And that means that they are presented as statements of fact that address the reader in the present tense. And we always let scripture interpret scripture. That's another principle that we need to know. And we see that Paul and the other apostles use this type of language all throughout the New Testament, mutual submission. So if we put all of that together, 
It means that these verses apply to the reader at any time and not just a random point in history. The Bible is written for us even if it wasn't written to us. It is for us. So just as we don't take the responsibility of leadership lightly, husbands must also not take the command to love their wives without wise understanding either. I think one of the church fathers named John Chrysostom speaks really well about this passage. He says, have you noted the measure of obedience? Pay attention to love's high standard. If you take the premise that your wife should submit to you as the church submits to Christ, then you should also take the same kind of careful, sacrificial thought for her that Christ takes for the church. Even if you must offer your own life for her, you must not refuse. Even if you must undergo countless struggles on her behalf and have all kinds of things to endure and suffer, you must not refuse. Even if you suffer all of this, you have still not done as much as Christ has for the church. So there's a final comment about this section of scripture. I want to remind you about a sermon in TBA's history. A few years ago, Dave and Ashley Shive spoke together on this very passage of scripture and on this stage. And I highly recommend going back and listening to that. You will really appreciate hearing this passage talked through by a husband and wife together. But hopefully at this point, you're beginning to see that mutual submission and love is the purpose of Paul's exhortation with marriage being a primary example of how mutual submission to each other builds church unity. It starts with the family. But Paul also gives us a few more examples, two more examples from real life, what each and every one of us go through to help us understand this discipline. Picking up in chapter six, the apostle says, children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win the favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Much of what we said already about submission and marriage could be applied to these two examples. But I want to draw out a couple quick things. The apostle's command to children begins with obedience and then he backs up that command by referring to the fifth commandment. Why is the apostle using the word for obedience instead of the way it's usually expressed as honor in his command to children? I think this is important for two reasons. 
The first is that obedience requires submission. And that's the discipline that Paul is teaching on. But I think the second reason is that obedience is a demonstration of honoring your father and mother. It's how children take action on the fifth commandment. How do children show love to their parents? It's the same way that Christians show love to God, through obedience. Again, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is a call to obedience. But parents are equally commanded to do what is right for their children, to raise them up in accordance with the law of Christ. So the final example is a contrast between slave and master. In a world that is bitterly affected by the word slave, we might find this passage the hardest of a reading today. But we have to remember that Paul is not discussing the horror of the transatlantic slave industry in the, that started in the 16th century. In the time that Paul wrote this letter, there was a manner of all reasons why someone might be a slave to another. Those include people that have been enslaved due to war, to those that are working off debts, and even those individuals who have voluntarily placed themselves in servitude to others as their job. That's not a far stretch from those of us who put ourselves in employee employer relationships. The employer has the right to direct the work of the employee. So the understanding for any one of these situations is that submission to a human master is rendered as submission to the Lord and that that good work will be rewarded by the Lord. This is a command for them to do their duty well. And we can apply this command to our own job situation, doing well in our work when the boss is around or when he or she is not around because we are working for the Lord. Finally, the, and probably the most controversial part of this passage for people in Paul's time is that he extends the command to love and to have mutual submission even to the masters of slaves and servants. You see, we have to remember that this letter is written to Christians. Christians who were both slaves and masters. And so this ethic of love and mutual submission is required for both. And that would have been unheard of in those times. It's representative of the type of upside down kingdom that Jesus came to build. And ultimately we're all slaves in Christ. That is what he's called us to. And ultimately, this kingdom that Jesus came to build will result in a restoration of all things where the Lord will make all things right and good and new. And this is the hope that we obtain by being faithfully obedient to Christ first and to whomever he has placed for us in our lives. So Paul concludes his discussion of submission by reminding everyone that there's no partiality in God. In his eyes, all are equal and all should submit by placing others' needs above their own. See, submission is others-focused. 
and it's the freedom to give way to others. It's a calling of the highest magnitude and it's the way of the cross. Christ went to the cross to show us what that way looks like. And he calls us to live the cross life as well. Wives, did you know that there is freedom in submitting to your husband? Husbands, did you know that there is freedom in loving your wife and submitting to her? Children, did you know that there is freedom in obeying your parents' commandments? And employees, did you know that there is freedom in submitting to your employer? Does everyone know that there is freedom in submitting to each other and to Christ? So you might think, isn't that a contradiction, submission and freedom? Well, I'm not saying that freedom and submission are the same thing, but I'm saying that submitting to one another leads to freedom. So what does this look like? What kind of freedom comes from submission? It's the freedom when you realize that in submission, you have the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get your own way. What a terrible burden that is. Richard J. Foster says, the obsession to, man, to demand that things go the way we want them to go is one of the greatest bondages in human society today. In the discipline of submission, we are released to drop the matter and to forget it. When we lay down our desire for our needs and seek the needs of others, we're living Christ's commandment to love each other. It's a demonstration of love to lay down your desires for another person. So as we close, I want to leave you with seven acts of submission. And I took this out of Richard Foster's book, but these are acts of submission that we are obliged to do, obligated to do in reverence to the Lord Jesus Christ. The first submission is to the triune God. We surrender our body, mind, and soul into the hands of a God to do with us as he pleases. The second act of submission is to scripture. Just as we submit ourselves to the word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, we also submit ourselves to the word of God written. The third act of submission is to our family. We look to the interests of our family before our own interests. The fourth act of submission is to the believing community. It's in this way that we fulfill the great commandment to love one another and to carry each other's burdens. The fifth act of submission is to our neighbors. In this way we fulfill the great command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the sixth act of submission is to the broken and despised. You see, in every culture, there are widows and orphans, and we practice true religion by being among them and serving their needs. And the seventh act of submission is to the world. We are commissioned to go into the world to make disciples of all nations and to submit to Christ's commandments. In a few moments, we're gonna observe the Lord's Supper. When we observe communion, we are gathering together as disciples, 
at the Lord's table. So I want to communicate to you that communion is for Christians, for those of you that have committed your life to Christ. And if you're unsure of that, why are you unsure? Christ has called you to surrender your life to him. Do you know him? Does he know you? If you have questions about that, we would love nothing more than to speak to you about what that relationship looks like. Don't leave here today if that's you and you have questions about that. So as we celebrate this fellowship together, we can use this time to reflect on what the Lord has done for us and what he is asking you to do. The Christian life is one of submission. This is what he's called us to do, to take up our crosses, to live the cross life and to follow him. During that same week, that same evening when the Lord instituted this communion, he gathered his disciples together and acting as a servant, he washed their feet, submitting to them. And then he said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. When you come to be served communion this morning, you'll take the bread and you'll dip it into the cup and you consume the elements together. It's Christ's body washed in his own blood as we consume that. That's the image of intention. So band and servers, would you go ahead and come on up? As you commune with the Lord and your church family, as you do this, it's a perfect time to reflect on those acts of submission we discussed this morning. Where is your heart at? Have you fully submitted your life to Christ? Think on those things. The Lord Jesus, on the night of his arrest, took the bread and after giving thanks to God, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat this bread, church, and drink this cup, church, you proclaim the saving death and the rising of our Lord and Savior until he comes again. So when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he also gave us a prayer. I wanna begin our communion with him by reciting the prayer that he taught us to pray. So would you stand with me as we recite the Lord's Prayer together and afterwards you come and receive communion and fellowship with your church Ponder this act of submission that you've been called to and fellowship with your Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.